0: who are doing big things, learn new skills, and most importantly, give you actionable steps to make a difference today. Let's go. Hello, it is your host, Catherine here, and welcome to another episode of Social Workers Rise. It is just about Veterans Day in 2021 and i'm really grateful that we're able to highlight one of our our veterans here in the united states and also a counselor who has really talked in this episode about her own personal experience and essentially you know why she became a counselor and where she works now and how she works with veterans now including her book that she wrote and the workbook that is available for free for any, any soldier that you know. So if you are a social worker and you work with veterans or you know soldiers who may be struggling with PTSD but don't know exactly what it is yet, then that is exactly the purpose of this workbook. Our guest is Virginia Cruz and I am so excited to have her. And You know, I think it's important to mention that no matter your political backgrounds, your beliefs about wars, I mean, all of the freedoms that we have here in the United States are in thanks to our veterans and their families and the sacrifices that they have made. You know, all of the freedoms that we have, including, you know, the freedom to pursue our passion, the freedom to challenge injustice, the freedom to vote. All of these things are thanks, in thanks to our veterans. And I wanted to provide a little bit of context about how common is PTSD in veterans. And this is according to the National Center for PTSD through the U.S. Department of Veteran Affairs. And it really depends on, they have it broken down by the wars that they may have served in. So for the operations Iraqi Freedom and Enduring Freedom, about 11 to 20 of every 100 veterans who served have experienced PTSD in a given year, and that is between 11 to 20 percent. Pretty significant. It's also significant for the Gulf War, 12 percent of veterans have PTSD in any given year. And people who served in the Vietnam War, it's about 15% um, that were diagnosed with PTSD um, at the time of the most recent study in the late 1980s. Other factors may also contribute to the development of PTSD in veterans. If they are in a combat situation, that can add more stress to an already stressful situation. It may contribute to PTSD and other mental health problems. Other factors include what you did in the war, the politics around the war, where the war was fought, and the type of enemy that you faced. Another cause of PTSD in the military can also be military sexual trauma, or MST. It's any type of sexual harassment or sexual assault that occurs while someone is in the military. And this can happen to both men and women. It is important to highlight that. So among the veterans who use the VA healthcare system, about 23% reported sexual assault while they were in the military. So that is even higher than the people who have experienced PTSD. And 55% of women and 38% of men have experienced sexual harassment while in the military. Um, and it is important to note that there are many more male veterans than there are female veterans. So even though military sexual trauma is more common in women veterans, over half of all veterans with military sexual trauma are actually men. So there is a couple stats for you. The link to visit this page is in the bio if you want to learn more. And with that, we are going to talk about PTSD facts versus fiction. There are a lot of lies and misconceptions that are floating around, not just in society, but within the therapeutic world as well. And Virginia really talks about the different, the different lies (laughs) that she sees uh, within her work, working with military, and then also that she experienced on a personal level too. So I'm excited for you to listen in to her story. She's going to share, you know, all about the, not only the lines, but the correct information. And then also the three evidence-based treatments for PTSD and the two questions that she feels it's important to ask before we even start the therapeutic process. Uh, with a veteran. So with that, let's hop into this episode. This episode is proudly brought to you by the RISE directory, a national directory of clinical supervisors who are dedicated to helping the next generation of clinical social workers grow in their clinical skills. The link is in the show notes, check it out, and tell every clinical supervisor you know about this directory. Hello, Virginia. Oh my gosh, I think I hear you. (laughs) Yes, welcome to the Social Workers Rise podcast. I'm so excited to talk to you today. I'm excited
1: to be here. Thank you so much for this opportunity to talk to your listeners. It's awesome.
0: Of course. Yes, yes. You have an amazing and fascinating story. So I'm I'm excited to hear your input cuz we're going to talk about the facts and rumors about PTSD. So I know my listeners may not know you yet, but I wanted to give a little bit of background on on who you are. So you are Virginia Cruz, you're a licensed professional counselor and National Certified Counselor, specializing in military issues and combat-related trauma. You provide crisis intervention and evidence-based treatments for post-traumatic stress disorder, moral injury, depression, combat operational stress, and other diagnoses. You do a lot, Virginia. (laughs) I do! I do. You know, I never it's
1: you know, I, when I I never grew up and wanted to be a, a trauma therapist. And I don't think any of us really do. Um, you know, I, I came up in the military. I came to mental health as kind of a second career, but I came up in in the military as a linguist. I'm an Arabic speaker. And so at the beginning of this war cycle, I had a lot of work. And uh, in 2008, after my third deployment to Iraq, I was really at my worst with my own PTSD. And I got volunteered to go see a psychiatrist. So this was at a military treatment facility in Europe. And the psychiatrist was an active duty military officer. It was a male colonel. Now at that time, I was really feeling overwhelmed, suicidal. I was in a really vulnerable position because I knew that there was something seriously wrong with my mental health, but I didn't know what it was. And in 2008, we weren't really talking about PTSD. So I was terrified. I sat down with the psychiatrist for the better part of an hour, Catherine, and I answered his questions. I poured my heart out. And at the end of our time, he looked me in the eye and said, you know, Virginia, there's nothing I can do if you can't be honest with me. And I was absolutely bewildered. And then he further qualified his statement and said, you know, we all know that women don't serve in combat and I can't help you if you won't tell me the truth.
0: Oh, my gosh.
1: Legit. I wish I were making this up. Um, This particular psychiatrist labeled me with a personality disorder and he really dismissed my experience. I felt like I was kicked while I was already down. So, adding to insult to injury, I was really kicked by another service member who I really felt was supposed to have my back. I, I remember it so well, Catherine, because, you know, even though I was drinking a lot back then, I remember that that feeling of betrayal cut extremely deeply. I internalized that hurt and I really thought seriously about giving up. And it was in that moment that I realized that man, if I don't figure out how to help myself, I am literally going to die. I'm either going to die by insanity or by my own hand. And uh, I did the only thing I really knew to do at that point. And I enrolled in graduate school. And 13 years later, you know, here I am getting to talk to you and to your listeners. So one of the first gigs that I got after I was licensed was that I worked um, teaching. And I, I ended up teaching active duty service members who were in an inpatient treatment facility about PTSD and co-occurring disorders. And I was given a really solid curriculum and it was very accurate, but it wasn't very relatable. It talked all about, you know, really the brain science behind it and, you know, the activation of the amygdala, and the frontal lobes. And every one of my students just glazed over hmm. the curriculum, I mean, it was correct, but it just wasn't relatable. Mm -hmm. And when I was in the military, I had a a senior non-commissioned officer who used to always say to me, you know, hey, are you putting down, are you picking up what I'm putting down? Or, you know, are you picking up what I'm putting down? And isn't that what we do as social workers and and as mental health professionals? We, people aren't coming to us because they are having a great day. We are meeting people at legit the lowest point of their lives. And it's so hard to be picking up what anybody's putting down, let alone if it's really if it's just if it's just unattainable or if it's explained in a way that makes it more complicated than what it needed to be. And so I I had to really rethink this curriculum. And I thought to myself, what was it that I needed personally when I was at my lowest point? And what I needed was somebody to put down what I was able to pick up. I needed to understand what it, what's happening to me. What are these symptoms? You know, is this normal or am I going batty? Am I really losing this? Um, I needed to know what are my options to get better? I needed something very straight, very direct, and then I needed help. I needed a step-by-step play, <coughs> excuse me, plan to implement, you know, these courses of action. I needed some more brass tacks too. I needed to know how to talk to my family members to get buy-in because I really needed support. I needed to know how to make friends and to, and get that social support. I needed to know how to talk to my military chain of command. I, I needed to know, you know, and a lot of our clients need to know, how am I going to talk to my HR department? And most importantly, I really needed those action steps for after treatment. I needed to know, how am I going to keep from relapsing? Uh, yeah, back then, I didn't, I thought that relapse was just for drugs and alcohol. I didn't realize that relapse can happen in all sorts of ways with mental health or physical health just means going back to an earlier time. And so I, I needed to know how can I create healthy boundaries even if I'm still in the military, even with my HR department or at work, how can I make friends and get that social support so that, so that I can feel supported? How can I talk to my family members? How can I maintain the gains that I make with my individual counselor so that I can talk about my recovery and really come back from this and reclaim my life. And so I, I started teaching this class. You know, I kind of made up the curriculum on my own. I started teaching it and I've probably taught it to well over a thousand service members at this point. And my, my students kept up with me, they kept on my butt. And um, finally, just this past year, because 2020 was kind of a wash, Uh, In 2021, in just February, we went ahead and published The Soldier's Guide to PTSD. And it's subtitled How to Know Crap Reclaim Your Life. (laughs) (laughs) With with the word crap not being crap. So (laughs) just to give your, your listeners an idea of the language that is in the book. And it is really, it is a, it's a soldier to soldier guide on what PTSD isn't, what it is, And how do we know kidding recover from it? So the most important thing, I mean, I started out as a linguist. And so language is really important to me. And I know that this is a focus of social workers being so client centered, you know, really being able to meet clients where they're at and explain this in a way that I'm putting down, putting something down that other people can easily pick up and make actionable And one of the things I love about this podcast is you're always saying, you know, how can we put this into action? How can we make this actionable? And so taking something as complex as the DSM, which is written by clinicians for clinicians and a bunch of psychobabble that doesn't really help anybody but other clinicians. How can we take this information and give it to our clients in a way that they can normalize their... really normalize their symptoms, understand that we're not going insane, that there is, there are evidence-based treatments for this that work most of the time for most people. And even if those evidence-based treatments don't work, that there are other treatments that are available that were not beyond hope. PTSD is trauma. It's ubiquitous. We see it everywhere you know, your listeners, and especially new social workers who may be working in, you know, adults or child child protective services in the jails and prisons. I mean, we're seeing trauma everywhere. It is ubiquitous. Mm
0: -hmm. And we're
1: seeing trauma reactions. So even if your listeners don't end up going into military mental health, You know, when I'm when I'm teaching uh, students, you know, at the local university or working with interns, I think it's so important that we have a working understanding of trauma and trauma reactions, because unfortunately, we are going to see it over and over and over again. And we there really, really is hope for PTSD,
0: Yes, yes, your story is so powerful, Virginia, and I'm so glad that we're having this conversation because you're right. Trauma is everywhere. I mean, there's there's so many people who have PTSD and may not even realize it. So I'm wondering, you know, what are what are some facts and rumors about PTSD? So one, I, I just want to acknowledge first the definition. Um, and this was just a quick, a quick Google. Um, so it's a disorder in which a person has difficulty recovering after experiencing or witnessing a terrifying event. And this can be this can be symptoms of nightmares, unwanted memories or flashbacks of the trauma, avoiding situations that bring back memories of the trauma, heightened reactions, anxiety, depressed mood and a lot of these situations that can bring on trauma include you know military service witnessing human suffering natural disaster um, sexual trauma or assault any kind of situation where you feel like your life is in danger or you're seeing other people's lives in danger Um, do you have anything to add to that real fast no, that was absolutely perfect. You were singing my song, Catherine. Okay. <laughs> so I know that one of one of the misconceptions, I guess, or a rumor is that there's no cure for PTSD.
1: Oh, Catherine, I hear this all the time. Uh, in the therapeutic environment. And and I want to be really clear about these rumors. I wish that I could say that I've only heard these rumors from clients, but the truth is I hear these from other clinicians, master's level, doctoral level, MD level clinicians. Um, So these rumors are so prevalent that it's, it's very discouraging. And I'll just speak personally. Um, when I when I finally figured out what was going on with me, I did a, I went to Doctor Google like all of our clients do, and it scared the life out of me. Oh my god! And it really it, it can be very discouraging, very dismissing, very belittling, and so I think it's so important when we're talking about what PTSD is to really address what it's not. And the number one rumor I hear in the therapeutic environment is that PTSD has no cure. So uh, you can add so much to that. So, for example, I'll always have PTSD. I'll never get better. The symptoms might go away, but the PTSD will always be there. So this stops people from even going and getting help. But the truth is very different. There are three evidence-based treatments for PTSD that are approved by the Department of Veteran Affairs. And that's prolonged Exposure Therapy, Cognitive Processing Therapy, and EMDR. Uh, That's Eye Movement Desensitization and Reprocessing Therapy, Um, better known by the acronym because it's just such a long one. And when I say that something is an evidence-based treatment, I want to be really specific about that. That means that it has been proven to work for most people most of the time. So these are the three that are approved by the VA. The VA, unfortunately, we all know, is a big bureaucratic nightmare. So for something to be approved by the VA, that means it's pretty easy to find. So we can ask for these three evidence-based treatments by name. We can go to Google and say, you know, EMDR Tampa, Florida, 33607. Put in our zip code and boom, we can find all of the therapists within our area who really specialize in that trauma-based treatment. But using an evidence-based treatment, it's it's important because they're based on peer-reviewed scientific evidence. That means that researchers have conducted rigorous studies using scientific methods. They document the research in journals, and then other researchers conduct additional studies to see if it works. So these these evidence-based treatments are tested a lot like the way the FDA would test drugs. So it's double-blind randomized trials over a long period of time with lots of scrutiny. And when a therapy method is res- is recognized as an evidence-based treatment, it's kind of a big deal. That means that it works for most people most of the time. Now, let's let's just take the Pareto rule. We'll say 80/20 just to make easy math. So if I had an 80% chance of winning the lottery, I'd play. But if I had a 20% chance of winning the lottery, I'd play also. So that's, you know, it's math. We understand and researchers understand that there are a lot of folks who are going to be outliers and not respond to those three pretty, um, pretty readily available evidence-based treatments. And that does not mean that our clients are beyond help. Sometimes we will label people as treatment resistant, which can be a really discouraging label, but that just means that we have to try a different avenue approach. Mm -hmm. And all that means is that the three evidence-based treatments that are most readily available haven't worked for them, but we have alternative treatments for that. So the use of ketamine, MDMA-assisted psychotherapy, uh, the stellic ganglion block, sometimes called the God shot, faith-based treatments... There is so much money and research and time going into PTSD, and it really is paying off in spades. So the bottom line is that evidence-based treatments work for most of the people most of the time, and that is science. It doesn't really matter how we feel, but hear this, no thing and no one can convince us that something is true if we really strongly believe it's not. And that happens to be science too. So it's really important that we, we give folks hope for their PTSD. This is not something that is, that is beyond reach. And we have to be pretty honest too. There are a lot, of, a lot of our clients who are coming to us who believe that, okay, well, it works for most people most of the time, but you don't know where I've been. You don't know where I'm from. You haven't walked my walk. And you know what? They're absolutely right, Catherine. I haven't. I haven't. And there are a lot of folks who, who also think that and really believe that, you know, treatment is not for them or somehow that getting treatment for PTSD makes what happened OK. And, and you know, it just kind of negates anything that's bad. Um, and, you know, a lot of bad stuff goes down in war and in life. And we need to be very honest about that. And what I ask clients is, you know, is it possible that you're wrong? I'll just ask them, is it possible that you're wrong? Is it, have you ever done something in your life that you initially thought was impossible? Have you ever overcome an obstacle that you didn't think you would overcome? Is it possible that you're wrong? about you, that you're stronger than you think you are, that you're as strong as other people think you are.
0: And remind me what you've got to lose by trying. So powerful, so powerful. (laughs) Using that confrontation to to reflect and to help them consider, are they wrong? Is maybe, is there hope for them? Um, That's so powerful, Virginia. I'm, I'm wondering too, you know, is there another rumor that, that you wanted to address today about PTSD? Oh, there is.
1: Um, the second one I hear almost as often as the first is that PTSD is only for military service members. Mm -hmm. Oh gosh, I hear this all the time. And you know, it even gets more granular and I I work in military mental health. So this can, this even gets more granular within the military service. This idea that um, PTSD isn't just for military members but you have to have experienced combat. You have to be a trigger puller, a bell ringer, you know an infantryman, a special operator in order to quote unquote, deserve to have PTSD. And I hear this a lot. I hear it from civilians. I hear from military members that I don't deserve to have PTSD, that I somehow have not earned it, that PTSD is is some sort of a badge of honor, a label that is reserved for a select few. So that's not a thing. That is not a thing. That is fundamentally not how PTSD works. So trauma, as defined by the DSM, is, you know, actual or threatened exposure to death, serious injury, or sexual violence. I say again, actual or threatened exposure to death, serious injury, or sexual violence. And that is a huge umbrella. That covers things like, you know, being trafficked being bullied, being beaten, uh, going to war, natural disasters, genocide, growing up in a dangerous place. Unfortunately, trauma is, it's ubiquitous in North America. It is, it is a big part of our culture. Uh, School shootings, church shootings, um, rape, uh, sexual assault, B2 movement, <clears throat> and pardon me, I think was so powerful, because it, it was it showed us all that wow, at this point it is almost impossible for someone you know of a certain age to to not have either experienced uh, you know sexual trauma or personally know someone who has.
0: Mm-hmm. It's
1: just everywhere, and we need to stop pretending that it's not. So you know this idea of. Of actual or threatened exposure, I think is really important when we're talking about the, you know, this this rumor of you have to earn PTSD, and and I go into this a lot in, in the book, and I would really want to invite your listeners to go to thesoldiersguide.com, where you can download a free preview copy um, of the book. We you know we want everyone, including your clients, we want we want you to have access. To really go through the diagnostic criteria, and again, it's an you know it is clinician to soldier translation. This is you know clinician to English. So we're we're making things uncomplicated, but when we're talking about actual or threatened exposure, we have to remember that our body and brain reacts the same. Reacts the same when we are under threat, whether it's real or not. And when I'm talking with service members, I often talk about the idea of going out on a convoy. This is a group of vehicles that leave a base uh, to go out in town. So we're leaving a guarded base, we're leaving our guarded home and we are going out uh, into the wild, wild west. And you know, even, you know, even if you've never spent a day in the military, everybody here watches TV. We all know that convoys with service members get hit. Mm -hmm. that there are roadside bombs that all sorts of bad things happen once we get off the base and our bodies and our brains gear up whether that convoy gets hit or not every time we leave our body and our brain prepares for fight flight freeze so our heart starts to beat uh the reason is to get our blood flowing to our muscles to get ready because fight flight or freeze takes a that's a And and by the way, we don't get a choice uh, in that trauma reaction, but our body and our brain is getting ready for that, whether we get hit or not, gets all the blood to our muscles, our eyes start to dilate, we start to shake or sweat, we are going into kind of our reptilian brain, we are focusing on staying alive. And that is going to happen whether, you know, whether that convoy gets hit or not. When we are walking down, uh, you know, a dark street by ourselves, our heart starts to beat. Uh, Whether there's somebody, you know, and if we hear something um, behind us, God forbid, you know that this is what happens. So, you know, this idea of deserving PTSD is is pretty ridiculous because no one deserves to have PTSD. Like you and I, Catherine, we're really nice people. You know, we... (laughs) we're nice people. Uh, you know, no, we don't, I don't deserve to have malaria or HIV or schizophrenia, but you know, I don't get a choice in that. And you know, one thing also is that PTSD is not a contest. Um, and some, one thing that I will hear often with within especially military trauma, I don't hear this often I uh, like, for example, when I'm talking about survivors of intimate partner violence, domestic violence, I never hear things like, oh, you think you think you had it bad? Well, I went to the hospital three times because that's messed up. We don't say that it's messed up. But one thing that I will often hear among veterans and military service members is, oh, you, you just went to Afghanistan. I went to Afghanistan and Iraq, or I got blown up three times. And you know, I'm not saying that 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 is intentional. I mean, that is a you know that is a fairly fairly typical reaction to trauma and 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 to our own feelings. But it says more about us than the other person. But there are really unintended second and third order effects. Uh, we can make other people feel belittled, unheard, diminished, and more importantly. It keeps them from getting the help that they need. You know, it, it is, and everyone, everyone deserves to come back from their PTSD. I wish that I could say that the experience that I talked about when I went to see that military psychiatrist was a one-off. But in talking with hundreds of service members at this point, unfortunately, it's just not. This, this being belittled, being gaslit, this happens a lot when it comes to trauma. And from a social justice perspective, we need to remember that it happens even more to women, persons of color, and people who identify as members of the queer community. This happens a lot. In my case, he told me, well, women don't serve in combat. But we, you know, we hear versions of this all the time, unfortunately, when it comes to trauma. And so it's
0: it's just very helpful to be mindful of that. Yes, yes. I learned so much from hearing you talk. So thank you so much for sharing all of that. And I can definitely relate to feeling like I don't, quote, deserve to have PTSD. So a little self-disclosure. I lost my home in a wildfire. I'm here in Southern California. So... Uh, It burned down my childhood home burned down I was 15 16 years old and I event I don't I don't know I never got diagnosed with PTSD because I always felt like well you know I was never hurt directly from that event but you know there was the perceived or I guess it was a real threat because the fire was outside the house and I was in the house. Um, And it's just reflecting on that natural disaster. And I don't know if it developed over time, but ever since then, it took me a long time to not have panic attacks when I would see a wildfire in the distance. And now, you know, I can appreciate and bringing in a new new term here. I can appreciate a trigger warning, right? Mm. So if there is a wildfire outside, I appreciate knowing beforehand, okay, there's a fire outside, it's really far away, there's no threat, as opposed to if I just see the smoke, and God forbid, if I smell it, the smell is like a significant trigger for me. Um, I will just like lose <laughs> lose my mind and start crying. Um, but if I have that trigger warning, I can mentally prepare myself, okay, this is going to happen, it's fine, I am safe, because even though you know cognitively that you're safe. Like you said, you don't get a choice in it. So your body responds emotionally with all those physical changes, whether you like it or not. So I really appreciate you sharing that. Oh, thank you for, thank you for sharing that. That's um, what a powerful case in
1: point. Uh, it, it's, you know, trauma comes in so many forms. And, you know, I I hear folks, unfortunately, I hear other clinicians sometimes saying, oh, well, they were just in a fire. Or they were, I mean, that's like, really? Oh, my gosh. Mm -hmm. Some of the things that I hear. And that is terrifying. It was terrifying. Well, they didn't die in the car accident. Right. As if somehow that makes it not traumatic. Mm-hmm. Oh, my gosh. You know, and, and it's just that it, it's such the opposite of being client centered. It is just it's so selfish. And there are so many rumors. And and like I said, these rumors about PTSD are, you know, these I haven't just heard these from from you know, from other folks who have experienced traumatic events. I hear them from clinicians and they're dead wrong. And, you know, we have to remember in the therapeutic environment what an, you know, there's just such an uneven power differential there. Folks are coming to us at literally the worst time in their life. Folks don't come get it, it Well, I'll just speak for myself. Folks don't walk into my office or my Zoom room because they're having a great day. They're not wanting to live their best, you know, their, their best life and have their aha Oprah moment. They are coming to me because their wife has threatened to leave them if they don't. Mm-hmm. A, judge, a judge has given them their last, you know, it's, it's your last strike. They're about to lose everything. They're chronically suicidal. They are in a bad place. And man, um, and I, I, I probably sound all fired up because I am, I, but it really chaps my behind when I hear people being dismissing of other people's trauma experiences, because the, it, it's being kicked while we're already down. And having experienced that myself with that, with that military psychiatrist, it, it made me more suicidal. It made me more hopeless. It was a kick in the face and nobody deserves to feel that way. Everyone deserves to be able to recover. And those wildfires, oh my gosh, I can't even watch the videos. I see those videos sometimes um, of like the animals that, you know, guard sheep, you know, the dogs and I just bawl. And, and that, what you know, here I am on the other side of the, of the country, just what an incredibly powerful experience. And, um, my gosh, I'm, you know, it's a miracle that you survived that. And I, and I get it. Oh my gosh. You know, and, and what a powerful experience that you now bring into your therapeutic environment, being able to understand when your clients say, you know what, I had this traumatic experience and it, it doesn't have to be the same, Mm
0: -hmm. you
1: know, it's, you know, unfortunately trauma is trauma is trauma. All of the, you know, the criteria don't change. You know, we, you know, sometimes I will hear clients say, well, if you didn't experience exactly what I experienced, then you won't get it. And, and, you know, and I remind them, you know, I don't have to drive a Honda to know how to get in one and go. Mm
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, and um, the treatment works no matter the trauma. But to have that experience, to bring that lived experience into the therapeutic environment is incredibly healing.
0: Yes, yes, definitely. And I want to hear about the two big questions that you ask your clients when they come in to see you. Oh, I appreciate that. You know,
1: if there is one thing that I wish I had known when I first got licensed, it's, it's what I call the big two. So these are the big two questions that everyone has to be able to ask and answer before we start therapy. You know, uh, because, I, because I work in trauma, I will often hear from not the service member or the veteran themselves or the client themselves, but I'll hear from a parent a mom, a grandmother, a neighbor, a, a spouse, a child, and they will say, you know, my dad, my mom really needs help. Can can you talk to them? And it breaks my heart to say no. It does. And um, and it's so hard because when when let me let me further explain, because that probably just sounded unnecessarily unkind and harsh, and that's not my intent when when someone sits down with me in my very first session i always have to ask them a version of what i call the big two the big two questions number 1 do you believe that change is possible do you believe it and number 2 do you want to change do you want to so let's start with question 1 you know i will we have to really ask our clients, you know, do you believe it's possible that you can recover from your PTSD symptoms and no kidding reclaim your life? You know, do you believe that that is possible for you? For you? You know, we can expand on that in so many ways. Do you believe it's possible you could get to a point where you're not thinking about suicide every day? Do you believe it's possible that you could be a fundamentally good person and your symptoms are tricking you into believing that you're not? Do you believe it's possible that you could understand your symptoms better and maybe even forgive yourself? I'm not asking if any of it's true. So when it comes to that first question, we have to ask ourselves, you know, do you believe that it's possible that you can recover from your PTSD and no kidding, reclaim your life? You know, we have to really ask, is that possible for you, you know, to expand on that? We can ask, you know, is it possible you could get to a point where you're not thinking about this everything? Do you think it's possible that you could manage your symptoms and not feel suicidal? Do you think it's possible that you're a fundamentally good person and PTSD is tricking you into thinking that you're not? You know, we're we're not asking if that is actually true, because we're just at the beginning of of this process. But what we're asking is, do you believe that any of this is even possible? And this is a really hard question to answer. And we need to be very honest. You know, your listeners might be, you know, yelling back at me, you know, but Virginia, you don't understand. You don't know what happened to me. You don't get it. And you're absolutely right because I have not walked your far. But what I ask clients to do is to have a brutally honest talk with them and to ask and honestly, authentically answer the question, do I believe change is possible for me, for me? And the second question is harder because we have to really ask and answer a very hard question. So that second question, it, it's a lot harder to ask. And it's a lot harder to answer because we need to ask, are you willing to change? Do you want to change? Do you want to recover from your PTSD? And are you willing to do the work that it's going to take? Are you willing to get out of your comfort zone and do something difficult and draining? Because no kidding, that is what it's going to take to get better. Here's the thing, choosing to go through PTSD treatment, it involves a lot of risk because successful treatment requires working with another person. You know, it's a licensed treatment professional, social worker, and then choosing to be authentic with them. And that is really hard work. There is a lot of, there's a lot of fear in exposing our truth to another person. We fear judgment. Uh, We fear reliving the trauma. And PTSD treatment, it affects our lives. It affects our relationships with ourselves and with others. And let's get real. Not everyone is comfortable with being wrong. We might discover in treatment that we've been really unfair to ourselves. We've made assumptions that weren't correct. We might have to am- make amends. We might need to forgive. But we have to ask these big two questions because There is no therapist, there is no social worker, there is no research, no one and no thing outside ourselves can convince us that something's true if we very fundamentally believe that it is not. And there are a lot of reasons why people come into the therapeutic environment and they're just not ready you know maybe we promised a spouse or our boss directed us to go or you know we we just don't believe that it's possible for us to get better and not everybody wants to change and it's heartbreaking it's heartbreaking for us as clinicians it's heartbreaking for family members and we have to remember though that Not everybody believes that change is possible. Not everybody wants to change. And that is okay. It's okay. And, you know, a lot of folks who I've heard back from, who've read read The Soldier's Guide to PTSD, you know, they want to help someone that they care about. I mean, nobody becomes a social worker for the money or the fame. You know, we do this because we truly, earnestly want to help people. And it's okay. It's okay when people are not ready. And we need to stand down for our own sanity, us as clinicians, but also the family members and the loved ones we talk to. And this one it's hard to hear. And I know it's hard, it was hard for me to digest, and it's taken me a long time, but the truth is we have no control over what somebody else believes. We, we just can't make someone want to change because that's not how life works. And it feels unfair. It's hurtful because we see how it's affecting the client. We see how it's affecting their community and their family. And the fact is that the only person who can change me is me and the only person who can change you is you. And that is, that is hard. About half the people who have an initial session with me and I go over the criteria for PTSD and I go over the evidence-based treatments, about half don't come back. And that's a huge amount. And am I encouraging you to, to give up hope? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. But I think it's important that we as clinicians recognize that people get help when they are ready, not when we are ready. Not when we're ready. And that's okay. Just just a couple weeks ago, I had a client come back to me who I saw over 10 years ago, a Vietnam era vet who was really triggered by the fall of Afghanistan and now is ready to engage in that treatment. And, you know, we have to be honest, there are a lot of us who listen to podcasts and who are needing this therapy ourselves, who just, you know, it's okay not to feel all in you know, maybe, maybe change is possible. Maybe I want to change, but I don't know. And it's okay not to feel all in. And instead, we have to do that, you know, that loving cognitive restructuring, that challenging. And we have to say, you know, is it possible that you are stronger than you think you are? And when we go over the the diagnostic criteria and and your, your listeners can download this at thesoldiersguide.com, we remember that trauma warps our fundamental belief systems. It warps our beliefs about ourselves, other people, and the world. And it's really possible that our self-doubt is a part, it is a symptom of the PTSD. A lot of times also, there are those of us feeling that we don't deserve to recover. Uh, some of sometimes that goes into that, you know, believing that I haven't earned my PTSD. Um, and in, in literally in counseling hundreds of service members, I know that that belief's not an outlier. You know, we talk in the book about moral injury and we have a, a chapter devoted to that. And I know that that is a, a wonderful topic that, that, um, that especially social workers are covering because of the social justice aspect of, of, moral injury. You know, we remember that moral injury is soul damage. And we remember a lot of the times we, we feel, our clients feel like we can't talk about it. We can't talk about what happened and we resort to punishing ourselves. And sometimes that self punishment comes in the form of choosing not to get the treatment that we need to reclaim our lives. Sometimes We tell ourselves that we don't deserve to have a life because of what we did or what we didn't do or what we should have known. You know, we feel a form of survivor's guilt or we tell ourselves that we don't deserve to get better because we believe we're responsible for what happened. And so I would encourage you to ask your clients this instead. Is it possible that you're wrong? You know, (coughs) pardon me. A lot of folks believe that getting PTSD treatment is somehow a cop-out or the easy way to do things. And I would invite your listeners and folks who are listening to learn about evidence-based treatments for PTSD, because what I can tell you is it is the exact opposite of not taking responsibility. Going through evidence-based treatment for PTSD requires us to stare into the belly of the beast to take full responsibility for our choices or sometimes our lack of making a choice and come face to face with our truth it really is it's cue course for your soul this is not easy here's the thing if there's one thing that I know in working with trauma and, and walking this walk, having the privilege of walking with so many folks who have survived trauma, it's that the truth really sets us free. And it's very often not in the way that we expect. Not getting treatment is, is sometimes just kind of, you know, it, it's easier. You know, if it's doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. If we could have done this on our own, we already would have done it. But the truth is we need to do something radically different. And a lot of time this starts with our fundamental belief system. And that's why the big two is so important when it comes to trauma therapy. Yeah, so powerful.
0: Thank you so much for sharing, Virginia. Our time is pretty much up here. Where can people find you?
1: Oh, thank you so much. First of all, I would thank you for this opportunity and thank you for sharing about what we do and preparing for social workers. God, social workers are just the backbone of of mental health and hospital systems. So incredibly thankful for what you and your listeners are doing. Check us out. Get a, get a free preview copy of our book, The Soldier's Guide to PTSD. Um, you can get it at thesoldiersguide.com. Sign up for our newsletter. You can get a free workbook um, that I actually give to my clients to help them understand the diagnostic criteria. And again, it, it's it's we're we're trying to put put out there what people can very easily digest. Uh, You can find our book wherever books are sold. We have an audio book in 2022. We're going to have this available in Spanish um, because access matters. Access really matters. And unfortunately there aren't many resources available right now in Spanish. Um, Sign up for our newsletter. uh, Find us on Instagram. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook. Um, Feel free to reach out to us. Don't, don't think I have a life because that's not a thing. It's really a joy to be able to reach out to other mental health professionals and to answer these questions. Because we're all in this together. You know, it's we've got a real mental health crisis. And it really takes all of us working together to help each other. Thank you so much for this
0: opportunity. Thank you so much, Virginia. And all of the links are in the show notes. So definitely check that out and get your free copy. Bye, Virginia. Take care. Bye, Catherine. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining us on another episode of Social Workers Rise. If you loved it, please open up your iTunes Tap the five stars and leave a short note on why you love listening to the Social Workers Rise podcast. Also, if you want to share it on social media, I absolutely love it. You'll have me fangirling all over you. Take a screenshot and share it and tag me at Social Workers Rise on Instagram and Facebook. Lastly, Just want to leave a little bit of legal disclosure here that the information, opinions, and recommendations presented in the Social Workers Rise podcast are for general information only and any reliance on the information provided in this podcast is done so at your own risk. This podcast should not be used in place of professional advice, therapy, or clinical supervision. And with that, my friends, I'll talk to you next week.